Welcome to the Wanda Learn Podcast. This is Francis Tapon, and this episode I'm so excited because it's with Joe McConaughey. This guy set the fastest known record on the Pacific Crest Trail as well as the Appalachian Trail. It was recently beat by Carl Sabay, but only the supported side of things. Joe McConaughey still holds the unsupported record, and when I interviewed him, he was holding both supported and unsupported records. We'll be interviewing Carl Sabay later. But for now, let's hear Joe McConaughey, and he gets into the pain he went through in the Sierra Nevada, what it's like to hike through the Appalachian Trail, what is his job besides hiking, what what does he carry in his backpack, what kind of gear, what's his next year's plan, what's he going to do in 2019, and what kind of advice he has for hikers out there. This is a real fun conversation. It's over an hour-long conversation with an elite hiker, Joe McConaughey. So sit back, enjoy. Welcome to the Wonder Learn Podcast. I'm here with Joe Makana. What's up? <laughs> McConaughey. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> McConaughey, yes. Okay. But I think in high school, that's what people yeah, said, they're, right? They'd always introduce me, or that's how I guess I'd introduce myself. They'd, I'd ask them to spell my name, and then I'd be like, just Makana, what's up? Like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. Okay. Well, uh, otherwise known as string bean. So tell us, okay, you probably get asked this a lot, but why string bean? <laughs> uh, my mom used to describe me as um, tall, tan, and handsome, and thin. And uh, I think I'm definitely... Just like a string yeah, bean. <laughs> just, yeah, handsome string beans. I'm de- I definitely fulfill the tall and thin aspect of string beans, and that's where my trail name string bean came from. How tall are you and how thin are you? I mean, how much do you weigh? I'm about six. I always dreamed I'd be six four, but realistically, I'm probably six two and a half or six three. Mm-hmm. About one sixty five, one seventy. Got it. And then, when you've done through hikes, you've lost what twenty pounds or so, and you're worse. A little bit more. Yeah, I think I was one. Wow. What was I? I think I was one thirty eight at the lowest that I ever that I measured myself, which which isn't good. Right. So for those who don't know uh, Joe McConaughey, he is a guy who has set the record on the PCT for through hiking uh, as far as speed, as well as doing the Appalachian Trail. Uh, Just nailed both of those records. Uh, Recently, somebody passed up, I think, the PCT record, correct? Yep. Yep. Carol Sabe. But your but your AT record, your Appalachian Trail record is still holding strong. And I'd love to, so you really uh, impressed me with your, your through hiking accomplishments. And of course, you also do ultra running. So what we're going to do now is just kind of dig into who you are, how you've done it, that kind of stuff. So I mean, really excited to Perfect. talk about it. Now, start off with, you were an Eagle Scout, weren't you? I was, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Uh, being in Boy Scouts isn't the most popular thing to do necessarily, Um but I have, a, I have a really awesome dad who it was very important for him when growing up, having, you know, lost his parents when he was, I guess, in his, uh, you know, late teenage years. And I just realized it would probably be super important if I <laughs> follow through and become an Eagle Scout and kind of follow in his footsteps as well. Um, so I guess my initial experience with trails and the outdoors was hiking in the Pacific Northwest Specifically, a lot of 50-mile hikes would actually take place on the Pacific Crest Trail. 
uh, which I guess got me interested in trails. But then when I went out to Boston College, uh, I ran, you know, college cross country, college track, three season, indoor, outdoor, and cross country. So I wasn't doing much camping or hiking at all. When did you first start doing like camping? At what age? <sighs> um, we used to go on neighborhood camping trips or family camping trips when I was, you know, beginning in Boy Scouts when I was around 11 or 12. That's when I started doing 50 mile hikes with an external backpack, you know, heavy backpacks over you're doing, you know, seven to 12 miles is a crazy long day as a kid when you're 12 going through mountains yeah. in the Pacific Northwest kind of hating it, but getting through and going off on another 50 mile adventure every other year uh, or going on long canoeing trips and doing that with my family in addition to, you know, overnight backpacks, those kind of things. Right. You and I both come from the West Coast and we both went to college in Massachusetts. I went to Amherst College. Yeah, you went to Amherst, yeah, Amherst right? Yeah, and then Harvard for the that. MBA. But um, so why did, how did you end up at BC, Boston College? Good question. I actually just spoke with someone about this yesterday. They asked me, why would you ever leave Seattle? Because uh, it's, it's an amazing place and a lot of people are, are moving there now. I absolutely love going up in the Pacific Northwest. I knew I wanted something different. Not necessarily a lifestyle chain. I mean, when you're you know, 17, 18, you don't really know what you want. But I wanted a place where I could run competitively. And that also had a very high-end kind of solid academic side of things. Um, and in addition, I wanted to move somewhere away from home where I could have, you know, an experience where I was on my own for a few years and then I'd love it, have a great time and then eventually return back to Seattle where I grew up. And of course, those kind of dreams never always come through. <laughs> I've been, you know, out here in Boston ever since I graduated college, other than I guess living for a year in Austria. Interesting. So um, another thing about you is that you kind of remind me of like an athletic Einstein. Let me explain that. Um, Einstein was, a, <laughs> Go yeah, you're for like, it. what the hell? Um, <laughs> Einstein was, a, a, <laughs> I like that though. Exactly. I like the sound of that. You like where I'm going with this. Einstein was a, you know, a pretty normal, maybe slightly uh, above average student. Some people think he was terrible, but in fact he wasn't, he was good, but he wasn't the top of his physics class at when, and, and you also, I think for ultra running, you were not like an amazing Boston college cross-country athlete winning every single gold medal, right? No, I actually got my butt kicked in cross-country races. <laughs> and I saw myself as a, as a miler. Yeah, exactly. So this, is, this to me is so inspiring. I think anybody who's listening to this could be inspired because they think to myself, oh, I can never do the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail. No way I can do it. But then, not, you know, because I'm not like some super ultra runner, but, you know, you were not like a superstar when you were in college, right? I wish I was. I always had have had high, extremely high expectations of myself, and I've been falling short ever since maybe freshman year, sophomore year <laughs> of high school. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've always, I've always, you know, had dreams to do incredibly well. I told myself I was going to break four minutes in the mile before I graduated uh, high school. I only ran a four twenty two. Um, I, Pussy. you know, going into college, told myself I was going to be an incredible collegiate runner and be, you know, the number one guy on my cross country team within two years. 
I ended up doing terrible at cross country and, and mostly focusing on the mile. Um, I got anemic my first two years. I didn't really get into a groove until my junior year of college um, running. And even then, you know, I was still running. I guess my 1500 converted time was 409 for a mile, um, which is solid, but by no means is it, you know, world class or even top of the ACC. Um, I'd be competitive in races, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't winning or, <laughs> or dusting people. Um, although I, I certainly had a great time. And when did you start hitting your hiking groove? When was the first over a hundred mile hike that you ever did like in your career? Yeah, you're pro- you're probably going to laugh at this one, Francis. And I, I think a lot of other people will too. Prior to the Pacific Crest Trail, I actually other than uh, other than about a month and a half out, I had actually never ran more than maybe 22 or 23 miles at one point in time on, on one run in one distance. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, I do remember that, that. But what I was asking is if you had you ever done something like the Vermont Trail long trail, had you ever done like any hike that was more than 100 miles? Nope. I had done. Yeah, the, I guess the, the longest I'd really done was doing you know, week long backpacking trips, um, around the Pacific Northwest as, as a boy scout. Okay. And those, those week long trips, you never, you never did over a hundred miles, never did over a hundred miles. No. Got it. So, yeah. So this is again, really inspiring story. You know, some guy who was an okay athlete for his peer group, of course, obviously you're dusting regular people, but for your, uh, cross country team and the league that you were in, you weren't like, the gold medal every single time. And then you hadn't even done a through hike in your life. And then all of a sudden you just get the <laughs> balls to just go do the whole Pacific Crest Trail, not just do it, but then just kill the record too. How does that happen? <laughs> uh, it was, it was amazing. It was so funny. Um, and you also organized it. You had, you had a team of people uh, to, to help you out, to support you on that thing. I mean, that's, I, I, if I was on a team, I'm like, why am I helping out this guy, Joe? He hasn't done jack shit. How do we know he's going to drop out in one week? <laughs> it's funny you say that. The most important, probably the most important catalyst to making everybody feel confident in doing the the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, maybe even my, I felt confident in myself, but um, was having Jordo, who, uh, Jordan Ham, and he was a year older than me. He was my captain when he was a year older than me. Uh, on the BC team, he, I think he ran a 405 in the mile, like really studly guy. Um, great runner, grew up kind of in, he grew up in upstate New York. His family owned a farm and he was very logistically sound, um, very navigationally sound. And so I knew immediately that I wanted him on my team. Um, so I guess the first thing I started doing to help make myself successful was to bring the right people on board. Um, despite Jordan not having that kind of experience, I knew we worked together so well. And I'd, I'd say for anybody looking to form a support crew like that, um, the most important factor you should ever be looking for is your uh, is is simply how you you know bond and unify and form as a team because um, that's going to get you through a lot hairier spots. And almost every supported record attempt I've heard about they're filled with drama or people say you're going to lose a best friend, accept it, get over it. It's going to happen. 
uh, <laughs> I, d I didn't experience that at all. I had I had an amazing time. Not only Jordan came, uh, but then Michael Dillon, who I was also friends with at Boston College, and then they all went they went to high school together. So they brought their best for best friend on board, who was also a film filmmaker uh, or did that you know on his on his uh, spare time. So there were three guys that all were incredibly tight-knit and close, and myself, we all complemented each other so well. Um, and we didn't have any of those those struggles. Everyone was very understanding of their role, but then also how to make each other successful, which made it so much easier to be able to focus on the distance and ground that I was covering. But tell me a little bit about why he didn't decide. Your former captain, your BC captain, why didn't he say, you know what? You're going to support my ass, not me the, supporting <laughs> your ass, right? He's the captain. He's the guy who did the 405, and you're doing 422 uh, or whatever. You're slower than him. Shouldn't he be doing the PCT record? Great question. I'll ask Jordo that. <laughs> no, I don't think Jordo would want that. Uh, I don't think he'd, at least maybe he would. <laughs> I think he's very, um, he's very analytical and methodical. He's got to be competitive, though. Oh, he's he got to be competitive. competitive. <laughs> but he, yeah, I think he did an amazing job. And this is also a big a big task to undertake. I think the pain that he saw me go through, I don't think he ever wanted to experience himself. Right. No, I mean, it's definitely, tell us a little bit about the pain in the Sierra Nevada. That sucked. Um, <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> we just did that. That was one of the few times where we actually were just log logistically stupid. Um, although it started off. Wait a second. No, that wasn't the only time. I think you, you missed each other on the first eight miles. We did. That was, Yeah. <laughs> You've done your research. I'll give you that. That was a very illustrious start. <laughs> it was. Yeah, the first one, when, especially when you're in the middle of the desert. Um, that That's a really good feeling. <laughs> um, so we were we were definitely flying by the seat of our pants at, at a lot of those uh, portions of the trail. Um, and it did take a while for us to kind of mesh and come together. It was actually funny because the trauma in the High Sierras, I think, made us all confident and understand exactly what we were up against um, to help prepare us for any, you know, we had a similar issue. Um, so essentially to describe what happened in the high Sierras is it was my birthday. I was going over Forrester Pass, um, which is the highest point on the PCT, a little over 14,000 feet. And a little under, it's under 13, it's under 14. Yeah, it is a little under. You're right. Thank you for the clarification. It's I think it's 13,300 or so. I could be off, but. Something like that. Yeah. So we were, I was going over Forrester, and Jordo was, I guess, wishing me wishing me best of luck. He was going to um, come and meet me and hike in uh, to find me in the High Sierras. And he was going to give me a gear drop, essentially, um, where they were going to hike in on a side trail, set up tent, provide me with the resources I'd need. And then I'd just be able to keep going. And it was a 30, I think it was a 38 mile day, if my memory serves me correct, um, that I was trying to make it, which isn't a ton, but it's over really, you know, really uh, high altitude terrain, which we hadn't really hit before. Um, I was behind schedule. And um, needless to say, uh, well, I guess, I guess I got my job done. I got to the intersection that I was supposed to get to, I believe it was called like, uh, Onion Valley Trailhead, something along those lines. And Jordo and Jack had hiked in. The only problem was they didn't anticipate the actual hike that it would take to, to get there. So they showed up, it turns out, about two hours after I hit this trailhead. Um, 
and we'd been decided we were going to add on a few more miles going over Glen Pass where I'd either meet them at the other end of Glen Pass or maybe catch up to them as I hiked over Glen Pass and turns out they just never made it there and by the time they made it to the trail junction they thought there was no way I'd gotten there in time so I ended up missing them and spending essentially two nights um, by myself in the High Sierras with pretty much just a uh, you know a bladder of water, some trail snacks, um, a little bit of food, and, and no overnight and shorts and, shorts <laughs> and a t-shirt, uh, which is not where you want to find yourself, you know, anywhere in the High Sierras. Oh, so what month was that? Was that June, middle of June, or end of June? But I think that would have been end of June, because I believe okay. I started in mid mid June, if I'm not mistaken. The snowpack, or, how was it? It was amazing. I lucked out. It was very little snow packed. Um, okay. I think I had a great year on the PCT. So weather-wise, at okay. least. So yeah, very little snow pack. Um, there were a ton of mosquitoes, and it was certainly cold. And I got lucky because when I got to Ray Lakes, there were. Uh, it's one of the three spots on the Pacific Crest Trail where there's actually a a ranger station on the trail. <laughs> so I knocked at this guy's door at about eleven at night. Um, after bothering three or four campers that I'd assumed were Jordo um, or Dills somewhere camped out. And I essentially borrowed a sleeping bag from this guy at 11 a.m. Um, p.m. And P.m., thank you. And was trying to figure out what my game plan was because they weren't responding via the satellite phone that I had because we're obviously in, you know, backcountry. Their cell phones didn't work even though my satellite phone worked. So... I decided the only really option I had was to keep hiking and get to Bishop's Pass. And if they didn't meet me at Bishop's Pass, I was going to just say, screw it. I'm getting off. Like, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> this is actually dangerous and, and just stupid. So I got a little bit of sleep, carried on. I managed to make connection via satellite phone the next day, did a mid-30 mileage day. Jordo had a drop bag waiting for me at Bishop's Pass. The problem with that being he had actually made a whole resupply food package for me where he'd gotten all these things. He cooked up some food. He'd then left all of that as he drove up the trail to meet me. So he had to stop by a random 7-Eleven on the way there because he didn't have any food with him that was good for uh, like any bars or any real substantial food. So I had to basically, uh, I get the supply package expecting all these amazing, amazing treats and it didn't have uh, it didn't have a tent. Um, it didn't have real like substantial food. Um, it didn't have the things that I was really expecting to have. So I had another really miserable night out camping. And eventually, when we made contact, I think it had been something like oh, what was that? I believe it was two and a half days that we finally finally had made contact. And I was very upset at them, but at the same time, you know, when I when I when I was telling you how important it is to really love your crew, because you have to think of all the things they're sacrificing to be out there with you. I, as quickly as I could, tried to forgive them. <laughs> I, I told them, I hate you guys. And I really want to like yell at you and get pissed off. But ultimately, like we're in this together. You guys have my back. I know to the best of your abilities. And we're going to keep crushing this and, and doing this thing. And that I think really set the tone for the rest of the trip. Because prior to that, I'd either been really badly injured, um, with terrible Achilles tendonitis or getting my butt kicked doing really slow mileage and having missed logistical resupply points in the high Sierras, which are, which I guess are two strikes, uh, 
two strikes against you. So if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? Because I imagine that maybe the reason your record on your PCT got, record got broken, I think it was only by like a day or less. Do you know? Yeah, it was less than a day. Yeah, so I imagine through just logistical stuff, it was your first through hike in your life and all these other things, you could optimize that hike and probably win back the PCT speed record. Um, what would you do differently? Oh, there's so many things I do differently. <laughs> but that's, okay. you know, that's, that's something that's hard to... Until even after the AT, I don't think I'd have the same perspective. Like prior to the AT, I would have had a totally different perspective on it. But um, I guess one of the things from the PCT that I learned is a I I mean I was training as a mid distance runner for the better of a year, better part of a year, and then I had a month or so, a month and a half to train as a ultra marathon or endurance athlete which is, you know, pretty naive. <laughs> it worked, but pretty naive. Training is a huge part of it. I would 100% keep the same crew if I was to do so it So what would you do training-wise? You would go for longer runs? Is that it? Yeah, longer runs. I think you do. I think it's smart to uh, to not overtrain. I think that's a big, a big part of it. And also set your mm-hmm. expectations low initially. A lot of people go in thinking that they're going to immediate, you know, if I need to average 50 miles a day, I'm going to start off doing 50 or maybe even 55 because I feel fresh. And, you know, that's just that's just stupid. So how let's say if you need to hit 50 miles a day, how do you avoid overtraining? Do you aim for, let's say, 35 mile training runs or 40 mile training runs? Yeah, I think the big part of of what you need to do is and this is all based on intuition. I think a, a part of it is you need to get used to running and being active a lot more than than you're used to and that doesn't necessarily mean running but that you know at the very least means doubling or tripling on a lot of days um i don't think you need to put in crazy crazy high mileage to be in shape for something like that um, or to be in the right shape for it at least um, but yeah and also getting a hundred percent like a few multi-day sc- i guess like scouting or um like equipment prep kind of test runs is super important and then Training your body for the the elevation grind of the ups and downs is is super important. Uh, I mean, so I, I think that's one thing. You're the first guy I think who set any kind of through hiking record, and never having through hiked before. <laughs> Woo! Did it <laughs> right? Yeah, it's I mean, weird, I don't. Huh? I, I think every single through hiking record person has before they set the through hiking record on one particular trail had at least one through hike in their bag of tricks. Other than, I think other than uh, other than Meltzer or Jurek, but I think they have their own set of credentials for them. Oh, right, right. Yeah, no, but to me, that's just, it's just weird as a novice going out there and just setting a record without ever having done any through hike in your life is really <laughs> just a remarkable feat. I just, it's incredible because most people, they, they, they've, they've done it. Here's, here's, here's the thing I want to bounce off of you. And sure. this is something I've never understood from all the through hiking speed record people out there. I even talked to Scott Williamson, who's done it, I think about a dozen times or more, the yep. PCT. I don't understand why all these through hiking speed record guys for the PCT don't go southbound. To, let me explain quickly why southbound to me makes so much more sense. By the way, I hiked the, the PCT uh, southbound, so maybe I'm biased. But the idea is that let's say you start in, let's say, middle of July. And by the way, the, the main thing is that you, this all depends on night hiking. So 
So you, because obviously you're going to have less daylight if you start in the middle of July. So you start in the middle of July and then you, by then, middle of July, all the North Cascade snow has gone away or mostly, almost all gone away. So you don't deal with snow right from the get-go as you normally would, let's say, if you're doing a normal through hike. Let's say I started in June 23rd or something like that. There was plenty of snow up in the Cascades. So then you, so you don't start off in snow. You're there middle of July. You go through all the, and then the next big trouble spot is the Sierra. You're getting there in, let's say, August or something like that. Prime time. There's no snow at all. You blast through that. And then you're hitting uh, the, the, what's it called? The, um, the desert in Southern California in, let's say, October or something like that. So then you're not having the crazy hot temperatures that you have to fight, let's say, in June. So basically... Start... Doesn't it sound like a genius plan? Tell me why it's wrong. <laughs> why you're wrong. Um, the first reason why, well, the first reason why you'd be wrong is doing that, uh, doing that self-supported would be a nightmare, um, simply from the, from the desert perspective, um, for lack of, lack of water resupplies. But outside of that, I think you're, I, I agree with you actually <laughs> pretty strongly. Um, the reason why I did it northbound is it was a really low snow year so i knew i wasn't going to be getting hitting the high sierras and then i also had done and this is again naive because of how little hiking experience i had had but i think mentally it, it was nice finishing in washington seemed a lot more comforting and doable and achievable than finishing uh a little farther south uh or finishing in california so i wanted to get the um and i think some people would also argue you want to be running and doing the desert when you're fresh and you can cover that distance with more speed um because i think it does allow you to cover you know being so flat for so long you're able to generally cover more distance you know in the first third of your record attempt um, than you typically are in the last third, assuming at least how my experiences have gone, you know, the last third of any record of both record attempts I've had, my body's broken down in multiple, multiple aspects. And regardless of what kind of terrain it is, I'm just naturally going slower and I'm naturally doing longer days at a slower speed and still covering less ground. And I think covering the desert, you can cover more, um, going after it and and it's easier to stay healthy going over the desert too rather than jumping i think for the pct it's a great natural progression of flat you get you know some elevation gain in, in the desert sections and then you hit the high sierras where hopefully you're coming in with a little bit of experience and um the first week or 10 days for me as well also has historically been pretty miserable um where and then you set, settle into a groove um, and I think it's hard to do that starting over at, if you're going Sobo, it's hard to do that starting out in the Pacific Northwest or starting out in Maine um, and New Hampshire. Yeah. And this, this definitely, I agree with that on the AT. We'll, we'll shift to the AT next, but I just want to talk about, just finish up on the PCT. <laughs> no, air out your grievances. Cause I, I, I agree with you. I think uh, with the right weather, it, it probably it makes more sense to do that. I mean, it, it, it makes. <laughs> but there there are a few redeeming qualities. I mean, each. but when you go north, I mean, you lucked out, like you said, that you didn't have much snow in the Sierra going north. That's cool. But most people, 
they either have to, if they leaving, if they want to miss out on the snow, they got to leave in June. And going through the desert in June is just absolute murder. Even it's murder even in May. It's yeah. bad. And I yeah. went through it going <laughs> since I went southbound. I went through the desert in October, and the temperatures were totally fine. It was like in the seventies. I mean, it was nothing really debilitating. And it's relatively yeah. flat. I think it's easier terrain. Yes, there's not much water, but there's easier terrain uh, in the. Yeah in the southern part of the PCT versus the far north up there in Washington. The terrain is, is more difficult. So I think you're worn out, you're beat up, you've got blisters everywhere, and your whole body is destroyed. But I think doing Southern California in cooler temperatures in the 70s is much more doable. And by the way, I even found water caches that were still left over from the summer who survived from the summer. So there was water caches. Wow, you have water caches in October? Yeah, I, what happened is I think they're just left over from the summer. They just don't take them out. Yeah. Huh. So, Interesting. So just FYI, if you ever decide to go unsupported uh, through the PCT, you might actually be able to pull it off going south. And you won't consume as much water in October because you're, you're just not sweating as much. Yeah, because you're a lot colder. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. I, uh, well, the funny thing about that you say about water caches, because I always kept my eye out for water caches. Hopefully I could catch one or two. And um, the majority of time they were totally empty, which was so sad because I'd you know, be in the middle of the desert, I'd be thirsty myself and would love to have more access to water. But I was kind of reliant on my crew and how much water I was carrying. And I'd come up to these, like, you know, hundreds, maybe not hundreds, but 10 or 20 one gallon jugs of water, and they'd be all totally empty. Wow. <laughs> and I'd be so pissed. So I'd assumed in October, they'd be long, long gone. But it sounds like that might not be the well, case. Well, it could have just been lucky for me. I don't know. I could have just been lucky. Or maybe some trail angel came out in October and said, hey, maybe there'll be a, a Southbounders that we're going to help out on. So Francis is coming. I got to. Exactly. <laughs> What's your trail name, Francis? Uh, it was, I didn't really have one, but it, Mr. Magoo was one when, for the Appalachian Trail. Some people called me because <laughs> I was just damn lucky. Um, before we go to the Appalachian Trail, we have to, we have to do a little sure. interlude here and talk about something that is really fucking annoying it drives me crazy but I, you got to answer the question even though i already have my answers for it which is <laughs> let me let me let me imitate it why are you going so fast you know why don't you smell the roses you know this is not a race it's a trail you're supposed to enjoy the lakes and all this other stuff i've i've heard that question one or two or <laughs> a billion times <laughs> A billion, <laughs> and, I, and I feel like 99, well, maybe even 100% of them are on the internet, which is the funniest Of course. <laughs> so you got to, I mean, I uh, hate this question because to me, you know, it's like hike your own hike, motherfuckers, but, you know, go ahead and uh, answer it because I'm, sh for just to, in case anybody's listening to this and thinking, why are these people going so fast? Yeah, it's so funny when you say that because, and thinking back on my Appalachian trail and the PCT, I think at, at the best case scenario, my max speed I was going was just over four miles an hour, um, just over 15 minute miles, which is, is still very right. slow. <laughs> I'd like to think, I, and I was running a lot and I like to think I was running a lot, but 15 minute miles at the end of the day, A, isn't that fast. And then B, it's the experience I really wanted and the experience I was looking for. And it was also under the, the challenge and goal that I had, I had made for myself. You know, anyone doing a, a speed record, you first, you should read Jennifer Farr Davis's book, The Pursuit of Endurance, because um, she talks a bit about, uh, about why people do 
these kind of records and you understand the psyche of seven or eight different, um, you know, past participants on the Appalachian trail and everybody's in it for, for their own, their own reasons, man. It's, it's, it's fun (laughs) for me. I just love, I love camping and I love running. And the reason why I, I did the Pacific Crest Trail in the first place was because I wanted to combine both of them. Um, so for me, it's, it's super personal and, uh, and exciting and exhilarating. And, you know, part of having an amazing time is being able to see so many amazing, incredible places and sharing it with so many fantastic, weird people. Like I'm sure there's, you know, Mr. Magoo's and other fun, (laughs) fun hikers out there that I always love seeing. And then you're seeing some of the most remote, beautiful places in the United States. Uh, you can't not appreciate the experience that that you're putting in front of yourself, regardless of the pace you're going. Yeah, that's true. And also, by the way, a lot of people don't appreciate night hiking. Yeah, which is funny. It's such a great, great, like, zen you put yourself in. It's it's funny. Yeah, a lot of people don't even try it, and so they don't really realize what they're missing out on, but it's, it's an amazing experience to go out there and hike for a few hours at night. Yeah, it's weirdly liberating. I remember, we'll talk probably about this, as you said, but um, I, I started to hate night hiking on the Appalachian Trail. Um, Just towards, like, I just would go slower. I'd start falling and tripping on things. And, I like, it got to be that night, and I'd be like, I should just rest. And I got to hate it. And um, there was a huge breakthrough that I had, funnily enough, on, like, the the last night on the Appalachian Trail that made me just, like, 100% go fully on board for night hiking again (laughs) because I've gone back and forth with it over the years. No, it's interesting. Yeah, I just I think a lot of people also don't they forget that almost every single certainly every through hiker, but even section hikers, they all have a time limit and they sometimes forget that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in other words, everybody's racing. There's some people are everybody's racing winter usually unless you're purposely trying to do it in winter. But so we're all kind of racing. We're just going at different places. And even whether and if you're you can't make the scenery blur. And here's another one more thing I just wanted to say before we move on. It's that the same people who complain about string bean going too fast are the ones when they're stuck in Yosemite National Park in traffic, having to go at three miles an hour or two miles an hour, are complaining about how slow they're going. I'm like, well, wait a second. (laughs) 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 No, or they're going at five miles an hour. And you're like, and they're like, I can't believe how much traffic this is in Yosemite National Park or whatever national park they happen to be in. And they're complaining and bitching and moaning about it. And yet they're going nearly yeah. 50% faster than you are going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. We got we to gotta teach them a lesson. Let's go on to the... Uh, <laughs> well, my go, fav- ahead. go ahead. Oh, one last quick story. My favorite person I ran into on the PCT, and I have no idea what his name is, but I was running through... Uh, I was running through... I don't even remember where it was in the Sierras, but I was running through, and out of nowhere I just hear, Hey! what are you doing? And I look up and there's this really overweight guy with maybe probably like a 70 pound pack that's laid out on the ground. And I'm like, Oh, I'm, uh, I'm running the trail. And he's like, Oh, that's awesome. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm hiking the trail. He's like, <laughs> and then he's like, how far are you going per day? And I was like, well, like right now I'm averaging 41 miles a day. Oh, that's a lot. I'm going about five to six. <laughs> I just died laughing. Like those are the people that I that I have so much respect for who just kind of, you know, own own and love what they're doing and then are respectful and interested of of what everyone else is doing. <laughs> that still cracks me up to this day. 
Yeah, that's that's so true. So, okay, let's go with the AT now. Uh, that was what forty-five days, twelve hours, and fifteen minutes. You got it. And uh, so you not only beat the Heather Anderson two thousand fifteen record by nine days, totally crushing that one, but you also uh, edged out uh, what's his name, the ultra runner there, Carl. But he's got another Meltzer. Yeah, his goat. What's it called? Mountain goat? No, speed, speed goat. goat. Speed goat. Yeah. By 10 hours. There he is. Yeah. Good old speed goat. Yeah. So, um, so which is, that's what really knocked people's socks off. I mean, it's just the fact that it wasn't just, you didn't just beat Heather's record, but I mean, you also beat the, the supported record. So, wow. Uh, let's go through that. You started in, uh, there you started in Georgia. Yep. And uh, after doing the PCT, you had obviously some lessons learned. Why did you decide not to have a support crew for that one? Even though you said, you know, support crew was so important. They really helped you. You bonded with them. You left it. You didn't lose your friendships with them. You stayed friends. You could have used them again. Why this time you decided not to? That's a tough question to answer succinctly and straightforwardly. I guess the there were definitely logistical reasons First off, like getting three of your friends to take, you know, two months out of their lives. Um, at the time, they all had slightly less structured jobs and occupations um, that made it a lot harder for them to do another adventure like that, to do it supported. Um, but also personally, I think for me, and I, I guess a, it's always funny hearing people people's own interpretations of how you live your life, but, but I'm picking up on a common thread between us two that... I tend to uh, to kind of make my own own rules and follow my own hunches that kind of lead me to to great discoveries. Um, after doing the Pacific Crest Trail, I told myself if I were to do this again, which I don't think I'm going to, I would do it on the Appalachian Trail. And if I were to do it on the Appalachian Trail, I would do it self-supported. That was my takeaway from the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, you know, it's a lot more authentic for a few reasons. A lot more authentic to through hiking, um, and I think it's a lot more doable than most people give it credit for. And I kind of wanted to go out and, and sort of challenge that idea, but then also challenge myself and see if that was something I could I could put together all in one one big go when I have an opportunity. You know, I had to kind of negotiate with my work to take two months off um, to go on a big adventure like that. So not having a support crew. Part of it really came down to a personal quest, I guess you could say, or vision of how I how I wanted to do the Appalachian Trail and how I was going to be, you know, satisfied with setting another record. What What do you do, Joe? Uh, what is your career on the side? I work uh, for EF Education First, um, which is like an international uh, travel company, education company, and I currently work with. Uh, high schoolers to get their travel programs for schools to travel internationally on different tours. So they don't give you time off, let's say two months in for the summer or something like that. No, they give me. They are nice with vacation days, and I'm going on a trip to to Italy and and Greece this summer through them um, and a few other trips. But yeah, I I have to work with you know I get 20 days off of vacation for vacation each year, <laughs> which is which is limiting with the lifestyle I want. <laughs> Sure, of course. It's going to be hard to do the Appalachian Trail in 20 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the next goal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. Um, so then tell me about those. Uh, the uh, So you were in Georgia. Did you, th- I imagine you had to be thinking in your back of your mind, okay, you had two goals. 
you want to beat Carl's goal first and foremost if you could, but then your backup beat Heather's goal, uh, the 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 supporter record. Is that kind of you're going into it? Because you can't just like make up your mind halfway through and say, hey, I'm going to go for Carl's goal. You have to kind of start with that goal in mind, I imagine. Yeah, that was 100% from day one. Um, okay. I think when I originally focused on it. I tried not to see the lines of, of self-supported and supported and what those records were. I, I think there's actually some, despite how counterintuitive it, counterintuitive it is, I think there are pros of going solo that people don't, uh, that I guess are, are tough to tap into, but, you know, have, and I guess that speaks to why maybe I was able to set the record. But I think going self-supported, there are a few things you can tap into that that makes it a little more even of a playing field and not quite as absurd as it sounds. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, let's dive into some of the logistics because some of your advice could really be helpful for other through hikers who are doing, you know, kind of an unsupported through hike, which is what most people do. So give us some tips and tricks that you used in order to kind of maximize your time because every through hiker doing any trail often needs to get in and out of towns relatively quickly. And so you probably did certain things that really made you super efficient doing that. Mm -hmm. So tell us some of those ideas. One of the most, the more interesting ideas that I've been playing with recently that I didn't necessarily think about its, its power or importance when I was out on the trail, but um, starting to reflect a little bit on it, I, th- I think is very true. Um, one of the things that Jennifer Farr Davis outlines is when she was doing her record attempt, her focus day in and day out was to be a record setter, speed demon, distance cover, and she was putting all of her focus into achieving that dream. Despite thinking she had all that focus and energy directed into covering as much ground as she could each day. She still had to work with her husband and her husband's personality and him being the primary support giver for her for that entire trail. Being self-supported, you don't have those relationship dynamics that kind of take your focus away from, from doing the trail. It's a very personal vision and you have to really be responsible for your own happiness and sanity. But I mean, but what you're talking about makes a, a lot of sense to me because another, another issue I would say is the fact that you can camp anywhere you need, anywhere you want. When you're supported, you kind of have to go to those designated spots that you agreed to meet with your support crew versus let's say if you got another two hours of legs in you, you can push it another two hours and just camp in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. And that's one of the things that that leads to, is if you are taking control of your own situation day in and day out, and you don't have to rely on a support crew, you have, you're living out of your own backpack, and wherever you want to camp, you stop. And that means it's a lot easier to wake up. And ultimately, you're, you're completely self-reliant on yourself, right? If I, on the PCT, if I got out of bed and I woke up at 4 in the morning and I didn't get out of bed, like eventually Jordo or, or Dills would, you know, hit me on the back and get me out of camp and get me going. Um, if on the Appalachian Trail I did that, like it would mean that I was ultimately giving in to, to my own desires and ultimately shooting myself in the foot. So it was a lot easier actually to make those decisions, to go an extra two miles, to continue hiking, to do what 
I could max out on, you know, if I was injured or if I was, wasn't feeling good on a day, it made it a lot easier of a decision whether or not I needed to cut it shorter, um, and get early rest and not feel guilty about that or push on, get some extra mileage, cover an extra one or two miles or three or four miles that day, which, you know, one day doesn't make a big difference, but I think it was really easy for me to just add on, you know, two, three extra miles per day that maybe would have been limited if I was relying on road crossings on the, on, like I was on the Pacific Crest Trail. Definitely. And by the way, did you go up Klingman's Dome all the way to the observation? Because I don't think that's necessarily part of the trail. Uh, I didn't. Get, oh, yeah, I did, actually. <laughs> okay. For fun. You yeah, took that detour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the other one on the PCT. There's, there's that waterfall. I forget where it is. It's in Northern California, what it's called. Some um, In Northern I California. Yeah, it's north of the Sierra. There's a, it's kind of like near that hot, hot. It's been a while since I did the PCT. Uh, that hot creek trail. Anyway, what's it? there's some oh. waterfall. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, it's also one? slightly off the trail. Anyway, I'm just curious if you had gone on these little side shoots. And the other one is, I guess, a Dragon's Tooth or whatever. You have to kind of step a little bit off. Oh my god! To get that nice I had a movement. miserable time at Dragon's Tooth. I went down the the wrong end of Dragon's Tooth. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> which was God. so dumb, which was like boulder scrambles and, and steep declines. And then I realized there are no blazes and I just felt so dumb. <laughs> God. And I was in, um, so that was good. Where, where was that must've been a, cause the AT is a much steeper trail than the PCT. So I imagine injury wise, it really was much more painful. I, uh, I had all sorts of weird things happen, so it was kind of tough to say, but I, for sure, I was more consistently injured on the, it was weird, I had more, um, I felt like I, and maybe this is memory cheating me, but I felt like I had more consistent injuries on the Appalachian Trail versus, on the Pacific Crest Trail, I had a few major injuries, like I had uh, my pinky toes developed um, and got like mohawks on the bottom of them from dead skin and just miserable blisters. I got terrible, miserable feeling inflammation on my Achilles tendon. I had what's called like uh, my retinaculum on my left ankle swelled and basically calcified. So my left ankle was stiff. So for the last like week, I wasn't really able to bend my left ankle at all. Um, On the Pacific Crest Trail or on the Appalachian Trail, it was more a constant stream of injuries and flow of injuries where I I was dealing with one or two things per day <laughs> that just that just make it a little less fun when you're out there. Was the PCT the the injuries that you were getting stronger and harder than the ones and the and the AT ones were just a little bit more droning just in like a mosquito constantly annoying you? I think I was more I think I feel like I'm I treated the injuries more like a grown up on the Appalachian Trail. Um I think they were mm-hmm. worse, but I think I took more ownership of them and didn't let them kind of defeat me mentally or physically as much as I, as I let up on the Pacific Crest Trail. What else did you do logistically? I'm just trying to, you know, to me, I'm fascinated by logistics because it's kind of like when you're an Indy, Indy 500 driver, you know, a lot of people say that the difference are the crews, you know, mm-hmm. changing the tires really fast and the faster they fill up the tank and they do all that stuff that actually makes or breaks a record setter on the Indy 500. So I imagine it's kind of the same thing with through hiking where getting off the trail, if you can, you know, do, did you ever do laundry? Did you always eat while you're doing something else? Yeah. Yeah. A few of those false small fun ones were I, I would every resupply box I got, which was typically two to four days, I'd throw, I'd throw away the pair of shorts that I just wore, which is, 
really wasteful, but um, it worked. Okay, so that way, just to save, just to save the laundry issue. Yeah, I just bought a bunch of pairs of shorts and a bunch of shirts, and every five to seven days, so every other resupply box, or sometimes every the next for the next resupply box, I'd throw away my t-shirt and get a new one. Um, I actually got did a you, letter. Did you ever get? Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I even got a letter from someone in Maine from one of the guys at a hostel saying, "String bean, like namaste." I know your record attempt went very well. I'm going off to Nepal and I'm wearing your red t-shirt that you wore and left at our hostel. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> like, congratulations. I wanted to share this note, owner of the hostel. <laughs> it was so funny. Right. And of course he didn't wash it because, you know. <laughs> Probably not. I don't take, think he did. <laughs> it would take away the magical properties of string beans. If yeah, exactly. Shirt. <laughs> so, but so I imagine, yeah, you had to deal with, Okay, so you change your shirts. That's that's one thing. But what about getting on the post office and they're just closed ten minutes before you get there? I mean, did you ever have situations like that? Uh, yeah, for sure. I had because the post office is like on Saturday. It's closed halfway halfway through and things like that. I just don't know how you you pull this off. Yeah, great question. And I I uh, it was a lot of research. So there's a lot of people who have detailed notes about how different resupply destinations and places and oftentimes i wouldn't use post offices i'd use businesses um because they have longer store hours and they're kind of more uh they're more receptive to communication and it's easier easier to communicate with them and make sure that you know your package is actually going to be where it's supposed to be but for example i showed up at bear den hostel at mile 101001 in virginia and i totally forgot to look at my my kind of list of notes that I had, but it didn't open. They were available. I forget what the hours are now, but it was something like after three o'clock, I want to say. And I show up at 11 o'clock thinking like, oh, here I am. Like, perfect. I show up, you know, at this hostel in the middle of the day. What hostel isn't going to be operating in the middle of the day? And sure enough, I had to wait three hours (laughs) and just hung out at this hostel while I was waiting for, uh, because they had like a hiker entrance, but there was nobody actually there. So I had to wait for, you know, a few hours to <laughs> to pull this off <laughs> and that happened a few times a few times oh my god yeah so i imagine that's when you if you were ever to do these things again i mean that's one thing scott williamson got good at because he just did the pct a dozen times he finally probably figured out all these little secret optimization strategies for that resupply which makes all the difference in the world yeah it was it was amazing to see that and it was also fun to see some new because there's, I think there's a little more infrastructure being put in on the Appalachian Trail right now. So, for example, in Maine, there was a resupply place that, that no one really had used before. And I couldn't find it in any resources. And they had just opened up. And that's where the guy actually used my, my T-shirt that I just told you about. But um, it was a brand new hiker hostel that was in the middle of the Maine that was like the perfect, maybe not exactly the perfect, but it was a much improved resupply spot where I only had to go you know, a mile off trail, whereas I had anticipated having to go a few miles off trail if I couldn't make that one work or having a really, really long, heavy load for an extra few days, which would just be stupid to do at that point. Um, So there's new kind of infrastructure and changing aspects of the trail that I think will actually make it weirdly easier or harder for future, you know, self-supported record attempts, Um, especially if it gets more commercialized, you know, ultimately easier. Now, we got to answer some more assholes who are going to be asking this question, which I'm sure you've gotten asked 
probably online, of course, through anonymity. So, but here goes the question. How can you claim that you're unsupported when you're getting freebies from other hikers? <laughs> you got all the good ones. <laughs> um, no, I know I, how these assholes think. So I'm going to ask you the questions because I know a few people listening to this might be wondering the same thing, not necessarily to be an asshole, but simply out of curiosity, like, well, it's such a, it's such a good question because self-supported is such a, a, a smudged line when you really think about it. Um, you know, like what's the difference between buying something from a pizza shop that's open, uh, and having, you know, like buying goods, um, from a store where, you know, 10 years ago it wasn't available for the last person to do a self-supported attempt. Um, what's, you know, okay or not okay about accepting free items or goods or uh, assistance from somebody on the trail who you happen to be passing by, but they have, you know, extra trail food. What's the issue with Dan Knotts, another guy who to went after the self-supported record, he gave his credit card to another through hiker to go and buy food for him in town and then bring it back. Kind of where does that line become acceptable versus totally unacceptable right and there's also these uh, trail magic people who leave let's say coca-cola bottles on this in the stream so it's completely anonymous it's not like they're giving it here joe and they're giving it right to your hand they're just leaving it out in the open and it's not specifically for you it's just sitting there for everybody to grab is that also kind of like a no-no exactly right and it does, you know, taking one sip of Coca-Cola, does that nullify your attempt at doing it self-supported? <laughs> you know, that's right. a really hard claim to make. There was uh, even Joey Campanelli went and he had a serious uh, fall when he was in the in the White Mountains. And his dad, who happened to be, he I forget if he happened to be up in New Hampshire, but he drove out for, you know, hearing his son got injured, drove him to a hospital checked out his foot, made sure that he didn't have anything broken, and then drove him back to the trail, um, you know, a day later or something. So he missed a whole day getting injured. And then people online, you know, he got in a car, he crossed the line, he's now a supported attempt um, for getting in this car and accepting support from his dad to check his foot out, which is like, that's a brutal, you know, that's a hard line to draw for, for any situation. I wonder what they would have said if they, if they had given him a Band-Aid. <laughs> exactly right uh there's so many people with so many different opinions out there and i ultimately you know resign to the fact that if you're going through and attempting this record as a through hiker um and you're experiencing this trail as a through hiker that's kind of the guideline and ethos that i follow um so if this is something you know in the situation that you're in that a typical through hiker would experience and that you aren't experiencing because you're setting a record, then I see that as, you know, acceptable under the self-supported fashion. There are a few kind of, I guess, red lines not to cross. Two of those would be being, you know, getting in a car at any point just to make sure you're, you know, following those, following that kind of criteria. And then um, also being, you know, very clear about your tracking and positioning on the trail to help be as clear as possible to anyone tracking your efforts that you aren't leaving, you know, major holes or um, clouded data that might 
be misconstrued or easily misconstrued as you, you know, cheating or taking shortcuts or doing something unacceptable. Speaking about unacceptable things, how many pop tarts can you eat? <laughs> Dude, I'm a monster. I love pop tarts. <laughs> I that and sleeves of Oreos. I eat so much food. I oh my god, I could go off on for years about food i started out this is another interesting thing that i'd love for someone to do scientific research on when i was first starting i like was like trying so hard to get eight thousand calories in like i was stuffing my face i felt sick i was like oh my god how am like i plan to eat ten thousand or nine thousand calories a day and i can barely get to eight thousand sure enough by the time i get to new york there's a lot of delis on the trail I just supplement my food all the time, and I'm, I'm sure I was eating like ten to 12,000 calories on the, regularly, and if I wasn't, then I was feeling ill from lack of food, <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of that went into uh, Pop-Tarts were, were a great aspect of my diet. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you said something earlier in our conversation, something like, you weren't, you know, somebody came and gave you a resupply and it was a bunch of junk food. Basically, it wasn't really good food. And yet I read somewhere that, you know, you read like you eat Oreos and Pop-Tarts and, and Pringles and nothing really super healthy. So what do you actually eat and what do you think is really your recommendations of what people should eat on through hikes? Yeah, I think uh, I think the way that that uh, that conversation played out is is particularly comical. Um I 100% eat, I'm not 100%, my number one focus is caloric intake, uh, baseline. And that seems to start at around seven or 8,000 calories when I'm first starting out. And by the end of the trail, um, that jumps up to maybe even to 11 or 12,000 calories per day um, that, my body's, that my body's asking for. And that if I eat less than that, I feel like I'm I'm losing weight and losing strength. And yeah, 100% how much pop in a tarts. Pop-tarts? How, yeah, much, pop- how much is in like a how much how many calories in one pop-tart? You got to oh have that God. memorized, I hope. I had I <laughs> did have that memorized at one point. Um, like if you eat a whole box, I think there's 8 of them in a box, right? Yep. Yeah, there's 8. So so if you eat all 8 of them, how many thousands of calories do you get there? You don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't know off the top of my head. I had um yeah, I have. And why doesn't Pop Tarts sponsor you? I don't know. I should try reaching out to them. I'm at, at my peak in my prime, six months ago, I could rattle off the like calorie per ounce ratio of about you know fifteen to twenty different foods. <laughs> but I guess I'm losing it. You're proving me okay. wrong. <laughs> it's time for you to do another three hike. Let's go move on to let's say a gear. Sure. So I know that you had. Um, a Mountain Laurel Designs uh, Solo Bivy, and as well yep. as their Cuban Fiber Rain Poncho. Yep. Uh, fantastic company. They make some, uh, MLD makes some amazing stuff. Yep, um, I love them. And then tell us about your backpack. So I had a uh, Palanta pack. Palanta is, they're, they're sick. They're uh, really, really good. A guy named Handy Andy, who's through hiked. I believe he's triple crowned at this. Yeah, I think he's triple crowned at this point. Um, him and a buddy, um, him and a hiking buddy made a bunch of, they just made a bunch of super light, you know, through hiker gear <laughs> for themselves. And eventually that worked out into making it for other through hikers and eventually becoming a, a company and getting product to people has been incredibly challenging for them because of 
they just make incredibly well-designed ultralight backpacks. They have no frames, um, but just really quality materials. And he essentially, Andy kind of designed a ultralight through hiker slash runner backpack that I used for the for the Appalachian Trail. So it actually felt pretty cool because I you know tested a few different models that had one or two kinks that got worked out by the time I actually went on the the Appalachian Trail. Now, why did you not go, Joe, with the Gregory Tempo 8, the one that you used for the PCT? Why did you decide to change? Um, I wanted something that ultimately just served being like, you know, ultralight at its core. And, you know, Gregory certainly makes really awesome products. And I I still run with their backpacks all the time. Um, I wanted something that relied to be as, you know, as ultralight as possible you have the dilemma of needing something that you need to sleep on, or at least I, I take it as a necessity, um, where I want some kind of sleeping pad. And in order for that to, uh, to maximize, I guess, weight, you want to use that pad as your frame for your backpack. So I had like a, and you used a Thermarest. Uh, I used a Z pad, a Thermarest Z pad. I believe it was Thermarest for, yes, Thermarest for the frame of my backpack. Yeah. So I used that. Yeah, it was a Thermarest. You're right. So I used a Thermarest for the uh, frame of my backpack that fit nicely into, you know, when you fold it up and you put two panels up next to each other. I then cut that into like essentially three fifths. So it covered my shoulder to my hip to kind of take out bulk and also weight um, and then put that and that fit super well in my backpack and covered my entire back that gave me padding. So there weren't any um, there weren't any issues you know, because obviously you want that surface that your back's on and rubbing against for, you know, the better part of 45 days <laughs> with anywhere from 8 to 25 pounds. You want that to be, you know, smooth and have some kind of cushioning to not give you, uh, you know, and I, I had this issue once where I packed my bag incorrectly and kind of a nozzle from from something got underneath the pad and it went in my back and I ended up getting a back sore that lasted for about, you know, I think 18 days, which really highlighted while I was on the trail, the importance <laughs> of, uh, of the kind of pack setup that I had. And ultimately like what Gregory designed, you know, doesn't have that, that capability. Got it. Yeah. And another thing that's very important is your recovery time. And you went with a quilt. Mm-hmm. I'm also a big fan of quilt. I use Jaxar better, but you use a company I never heard before. It's called enlightened equipment, yep. enigma quilt. Tell us about that. Just oh, so it was literally the best gear purchase I think I <laughs> might have had. There were so many great. I I lucked out with the gear that I had. Uh, it, I wouldn't say it's the best gear purchase I had. That's an overstatement. But it was so much more comfortable. It's the down. It's a down quilt. Yeah, isn't it's a it? down quilt. Um, it has like a foot box. Um, it was exactly the right temperature I I needed it for the for the actual hike where it never was too hot. But being a quilt. If it was a little warm on some nights, you know, you can open it up um, and get a little creative with it so that, you know, you're not sweating um, in the middle of the night. And when you're hiking on a through hike like that, um, it's hard to sacrifice. Uh, You know, you don't really ever want to worry about being cold. Um, So it did a great job of being able to kind of self-regulate based on how hot or cold it was being a quilt versus a sleeping bag. Yeah, and the mid-Atlantic states on the AT can get really hot sometimes at night. And so it's really nice that a quilt you can let your feet, because your feet are just boiling and, you know, just they're throbbing when you're through hiking, especially when you're doing 50-mile days. 
so you can keep them outside the quilt to let them cool off and kind of raise them up and that's one thing really nice about this yeah quilt. and i another thing i found super useful is when i started getting a little bit more north when it did start getting a little bit colder you know i'd be hanging out around camp and one thing i always did was put my legs up for around 30 minutes to 45 minutes um to get swelling out of them and you know it was hard to do that efficiently um, but having a quilt made it really easy to pop in and out and like stick my legs up and pop them up on a tree or a rock um, without having to fully get in and out of a sleeping bag because I was while I was doing that I was also eating um, I was hydrating I was studying maps I was you know trying to log whatever had happened during that day so it was really nice having a quilt to kind of be able to move around and, and get around in as well. I still don't have a sense of your diet still. I mean, I know you, you're calorie focused, calorie focused, but can you tell me what would be your advice to people as far as diet for through hiking and sure. maybe in an ideal world? Obviously, calories matter a lot, but you know, in an ideal world, what would you be yeah, consuming? So calories were number one and a close, I guess a, a close second, which I didn't dive into, you're right, is the is getting just a good balance of foods and also making sure you're eating them constantly. I think when I did get injuries, a lot of that resulted probably in lack of hydration, but also a little bit lack of nutrition too. Um, you know, as an, as an ultra marathoner, one thing you learn is the body really can only calorically intake, you know, typically around like 300 calories per hour as an ultra runner. Hiking, uh, and that's, you know, that's a high number. That's a very high number probably. But when you're hiking um, and going at a slower pace, it's probably a little bit higher than that. So I was trying to eat, you know, at least two to 300 calories an hour. Um, and that would, I'd really try to balance um, a few major ingredients such as, you know, fats, sugars, which are not hard to get in, <laughs> but fats, sugars, um, protein, of course, is super, super important. Um, so fat, sugars, and protein tend to be the two main food groups that I was also always making sure I was covering. And then also, especially when you're in, in the South, making sure you're getting enough salt. You know, I ran into a few cases of rhabdomyolysis when I was out there, um, probably definitely from lack of nutrition but also or lack of hydration, but also probably lack of salt. So I was eating things like salami was super common. I was eating at least a pound of trail mix per day, um, you know, with nuts and uh, the other things you'll find in trail mix. Um, I was eating some definitely junk food like chips and Pop-Tarts and Oreos I find incredibly easy to get down. Trail bars like, you know, Cliff Bars or like Gatorade um, bars, you know, that are protein heavy. Uh, that help you just get that protein count up. Those are things I I always kind of had a staple um, in my in my diet, and I always tried to have a little bit of variety as well. Um, although I think I I had a pretty strong stomach for for monotony and cold food. Obviously, I didn't have a stove the entire time I was on the trail. You know, there's no way you're going to carry that weight. Yeah, I def and when I did the yo-yo of the CDT, I didn't have a stove for those seven months that I did that for, and. It takes some getting used to for some people, but I found, and I feel like I'm a dog. You know, a dog always gets excited no matter what you present to them. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Francis. Right? Yeah. You present the same food every day to the dog. It's the same damn food he eats every single day. But every single time at dinner time, he's thrilled. <laughs> His tail is wagging. He's like, yeah. So it's like Joe McConaughey, here's some Pop-Tarts. You're 50,000th Pop-Tart of the, the month. <laughs> Great! <laughs> it was so funny, and there were certain foods I for sure liked more. Like there were these chocolate almonds that I died for, and on one of the worst day, and the salami. I always like saved the salami for like a big, and the pop tarts. Uh, those were a few like key ticket items, 
every day where I'd, you know, every hour I'd be eating and I'd be like, ooh, this is going to be a great hour because in 45 minutes I'm going to be eating chocolate-covered almonds or I'll be eating half of my salami, which is so dumb and such a funny mental hoop to put you through. Put you, mental hoop to put yourself what, through. What but, flavor of Pop-Tarts? Oh, strawberry. 100% is your favorite? Frosted. Interesting. No, yeah. Oh. Okay. So pretty, pretty generic there. You're, you're almost not, nothing Too fancy. Too for you? No, I don't, I don't. Blueberry, I'll enjoy, but like cherry, no thank you. And, uh, and like s'more flavored, that kind of stuff. I, yeah, I, I could care less about those. Okay. So you do, you're not, you're not a complete slut. You <laughs> I don't have fine, I have refined taste. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Under the surface. Okay, you're, you're a refined Pop-Tart kind of guy. <laughs> So what's next for Joe McConaughey? Oh, um, is the CDT on your radar? Because a lot of through hikers who want to do the Triple Crown when they've gotten two, they think about the third, whether they want to do yeah, it Yeah, my not. girlfriend and I are talking about it a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's, not on, it's not this year for sure. <laughs> but um, we definitely both you know, said we would, we would really relish getting the opportunity to do that, uh, to do the CDT. So um, it, I'm... I don't know. I don't know the timeline on it. Uh, to, to be frank, though, I'd love to. I don't. I don't want to. I don't really have interest in doing it for speed. Although you know, I think ultimately, I'll probably still clip away a pretty fast pace just by what I'm what I'm used to. But uh, I I would love to get out on the CDT. And everything I hear from from other hikers is that you know get out, get it on the CDT while it's still the CDT. And um, although I I find it hard to think that it's going to be you know overly commercialized or popular. But uh, but I definitely want to want to try to make that happen at some point. Well, I think the big challenge with the CDT, as far as setting a record for speed, is that there's I, I think still a bit of debate about where exactly the CDT is, and that is an issue. Yeah, I've heard a lot a lot of those comments as well. It's something I don't necessarily want to get my hands hands in on for more controversies. <laughs> as much as I love people on the internet, right? <laughs> but um, no. I, yeah, exactly. I'd say I'd say that's a big part of it, and then also you know fastest known times are a lot more than just uh, long distance trails like the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. So uh, an interesting an interesting uh, thing for me right now is looking at like rounds in the in the UK and in Ireland. So I'm going to be shipping off to Ireland uh, here in a little bit to do the Wicklow round, which is 26 peaks in uh, under 24 hours. Um, which is a little about 70 miles um, with a little over 20,000 feet of elevation gain with a lot of heather and bog and rain and mist and orienteering and uh, you know it's a peaks challenge rather than a trail challenge meaning you can kind of design your own path between from mountain to mountain wow that sounds amazing (laughs) it's gonna be that is an official race it's uh it's a trail it's like a fastest known time record so it's similar to the Appalachian Trail in the sense that it's not an official race but it is a kind of kind of monitored um, speed record to see who who the fastest person to ever do it is, and the current record is a guy named Ian Keith. Um, I'm a I'm a Columbia Montreal athlete. He's also a fellow uh, Columbia athlete, and um, he did it in a little like high 17 hours, which I'm hoping to best. Now let me ask you uh, before we wrap up here. I want to ask you certain things that either through hikers or ultra runners often get told you know as advice that you think is bullshit that you think is just bad advice. yeah i i think uh limiting your i think limiting your potential is so easy to something you know from from my experiences um people who are ultra runners most of the time are not (laughs) 
you know, aren't people who people might expect to be to be top tier, top level runners. Um, but they're persistent and excited and passionate. And I think for sure it's it's crap to hear people be discouraged and put off by thinking that they don't qualify or aren't good enough or um or can't do something. One of the things I I heard prior to my record attempt was a past record holder messaged me um, when I said I was going to go after the record and said, hey, great to hear this, man. Super excited for you. Just so you know, you're actually looking to beat, you know, Heather Anderson's self-supported record and not the supported record. Um, They're two separate records. And then he went on to explain the difference in what supported records are. Uh, And I think a lot of people, a lot of people might ask you to cut your, cut your expectations short or will, you know, kind of chop at your heels to to get into your head. And that that to me is something I just I just never want to be limited and uh, never want to shortchange myself until I actually get out there and try something and have my ass kicked and then I can make that decision myself. Well said. Uh so Joe, if people want to follow you and follow your your future adventures, where's the best place for them to do it? Is it Instagram or do you have other places? So, if you want to follow the string bean uh, I usually post through Instagram, um, is pretty much where, where I like to put things, but, uh, you can follow at the string dot bean, um, on Instagram and check it all out. I'll be going to Ireland. I'd love to travel and I'm a big hiker as well. Do you also have uh, either Facebook or any other social media or is it mainly just Instagram? Pretty much just Instagram. I guess I'm too millennial for my own good. Okay, no problem. Well, <laughs> you don't have a Snapchat account? What's your problem? I know, right? Yeah, I guess I'm not millennial <laughs> enough. <laughs> exactly. You can't make Very everyone good. happy, so, Francis. So no through hiking thing right now on the pike, except for maybe, maybe the CDT with your girlfriend. Yep, I'd like to do that uh, as soon as possible. But as soon as possible, might have a different timeline than than where reality is going to allow me at this point. <laughs> but I just think right. it would be such a surreal experience for you to actually hike a trail at a kind of quasi normal pace like in four or five I months. know man I need to be I need to try to be a little more normal and go and go <laughs> leave the world for four to five months <laughs> well no we, we, we love it I that you're abnormal I'm, I appreciate you being abnormal it's, it is uh, it's people like you that make the that push new limits challenge people make people think out of the box so we do appreciate you being abnormal I really appreciate you uh Joe McConnell what's up <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, thank you again, Joe, and uh, I wish you the best of luck in all your adventures. All right. Thank you so much, Francis. Thank you, Joe McConaughey. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember F Tapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, F Tapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.